What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. episode 109 of See Here Podcast. My name is Morris Bushdinsky. This show is proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcasts. Normally at this stage, I'd be introducing my two co-hosts, Kerry Gately-Fristo and Tim Merrill. Unfortunately, they were not available to be part of this recording. That's really quite a shame. I would have loved them to have been a part of this conversation, but never mind. They will be back in October of 2023. So what did I do? What have I recorded for you? Well, if you've read the show notes, you're already aware, but allow me to reiterate. I've had a conversation with author and journalist Steve Matteo. He's gone and written a wonderful book called Act Naturally, The Beatles on Film. As the name implies, it's about the Beatles movies. They made five movies during their time together. Of course, there have been many documentaries and all sorts of things over the intervening years, but these are the five films that they made in their lifetime. Steve not only goes into quite a lot of detail talking about the making of the film and all the people who were involved besides the Fab Four and the other actors, but it also goes into quite a lot of detail, especially in the early part of the book, to put that period in social context and also in cinematic context. So talking about the other filmic movements that were in place in England at the time. So spy movies, earling films, kitchen sink dramas, all that sort of thing. So it puts the Beatles' populism and the Beatles' popularity in context of what else was going on in cinema at the time. So I really found that really fascinating. And I hope that if you get a chance to check out the book that you will too. My conversation with Steve was the sort of conversation that I really enjoy having on this show. I'd ask him a question and then I'd get a 10 minute answer. I didn't even have to interject terribly much because Steve knows so much and he's just a perfect guest who likes to elaborate. That's the sort of person who I like to invite onto this program. And hopefully you'll get something out of this as well. So I'm going to stop blathering on we don't really have a trailer to play. Well, I guess we could play one of the Beatles film trailers. Yeah, I'll do that for your enjoyment. And then I'll be back to play for you my discussion with Steve. And then after that, I'll talk to you at the end of the show what is going to be happening in October of 2023. That will be episode 110 of See Here Podcast. 
nothing is real. The Beatles. Yellow Submarine. Photography, landscapes painted with beetle sound. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. We all live in the yellow submarine. The yellow submarine. Yellow submarine. The forces of good. The beetles. The boob. I must complete my bust. Two novels, finish my blueprints, begin my begin. Hey, Jeremy, must you always talk in rhyme? <laughs> if I spoke prose, you'd all find out I don't know what I talk about. He's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land. The forces of evil. Robin, the butterfly stomper. Snapping turtle turks. <laughs> The Apple Bonkers. The Terrible Flying Glove. The Arch Villain. The Blue Meanie. You could pass for the originals. Well, we are the originals. John, will ya? What's the matter, John, love? Blue meanies? Newer and bluer meanies have been sighted within the vicinity of this theatre. Oh. There's only one way to go out. How's that? Singing! One, two, three, ha! We all live in a yellow submarine. Yellow
Welcome back to episode 109 of the See Here podcast. And on the other end of a Zoom connection, I have the author of a wonderful new book called Act Naturally, The Beatles on Film. Are they going to put you in the movies, Steve? I, have, I don't think I'm, so. I have the perfect <laughs> face for radio. <laughs> yeah, I've been told that. So on the other end of a Zoom connection, I have author Steve Matteo. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hi, how are you? Nice to be here. It's lovely to have you on the show. We've only had one Beatles film on this program. Previously, we had a discussion about Yellow Submarine. Is going back a few years. And at the same time, though, I also had an author that I know you're familiar with, Mitch Axelrod, uh, talking, oh, yeah. about, talking about the Beatles cartoons, which was right. something. Yeah, that's a great book. I, I referenced that book in my book, and I know him. He actually doesn't live too far from where I live. Isn't that funny? Small world. Does everyone in New York know each other? <laughs> <laughs> so your book, Act Naturally, The Beatles on Film, is attempts to sort of provide a lineage, an alternative type of Beatles history, if you will, to, I guess, what the typical Beatles books, and that's really an industry unto itself. But before we get into the workings of the book, I guess I've got to ask you, do you remember what the first Beatles film that you saw actually was? You know, it was. I was probably a child and I probably saw on television, I'm going to guess it was probably Yellow Submarine at 10 years old or something. That That's probably the first one I saw. And, you know, being aware of who the Beatles were, but not really having any sense of really what am I watching here? It's just you're 10 years old. You know, you're not you're not a young child, but you're a child. You're watching a cartoon. I mean, that's really essentially what it is, an, an animated film. And it's great music. I mean, you probably as a child, you probably pick up on a certain amount of the sort of the anarchy and the sort of anti-authoritarianism or whatever the word is. That's probably I'm going to guess probably the first one. And then probably on the big screen and in an actual movie theater, I'm going to guess that it's, it was, it could have been magical mystery tour at, you know, one of these sort of midnight movies, cult movies that they show that they used to do quite a bit here in the States in the seventies or let it be. I don't know which, which one comes, maybe let it be. I don't remember if I saw let it be when it first came out in the movies. You know, I think when I was younger, yeah, the Beatles, yeah, I like the Beatles. And, but you don't really understand the, the significance, the importance, the history, the context. So some of these things I don't remember clearly because you're not experiencing it in this way of, I have to remember this and I need to know what the chronology is, that sort of thing. I do remember for sure that the first Beatles film I saw was on television. It was Help. That was on one of our TV stations here, I think, every year. I got into the Beatles uh, when I was about 10 years old. So that was a few years after they'd split up, but it seemed that Help was on television every year, like as a weekend midday movie, probably like on a Sunday every once a year or something like that. I just found it funny. I loved watching comedy TV shows and comedy movies as a kid. And this is just another funny film that just happened to have some great songs. But I think the first film that I got to see of theirs in a cinema would have been A Hard Day's Night on the 20th anniversary. We have or rather I should say we had a cinema that, not exactly a repertory cinema, but they were sort of like an art house cinema in a way where I don't think anyone else in Melbourne was doing the sort of things that they did, whole little left of centre sort of stuff. It was called the Valhalla. And I think on the 20th anniversary, they had like a two or three week season of A Hard Day's Night. I 
pretty sure I would have seen it there before I ended up getting the VHS tape. So I think you saw everything else that you're trying to recall as your first Beatles experience to what I did. Do you remember seeing the cartoons? Brodex King Oh yeah, cartoons. yeah. As a kid, I definitely remember them being on television and watching them. And again, it's just like you're watching it, and you're not. It's like an almost like another cartoon, but it's like it's the Beatles. I was always into music, even when I was a little kid. Again, there's no sort of significance at the moment, and there's no context. You know, as I talk about in the book, the cartoons, while they evolved over time, in many respects, the Beatles sort of remained kind of frozen in time in the cartoons that was always the sort of Beatlemania mop top mod, not even mod Beatles. It never was like where the series would move along, where the Beatles would look different. Mm-hmm. You know, the psychedelic, the mod thing, the psychedelic thing, the hippie thing, whatever, it never, it never happened. They always kind of remained sort of frozen in time. And as a kid, as you're watching this, you know, as a child, you're not even thinking about it. You're not conscious of it. Which I think is something that you point out in the book, part of the reason why the Beatles were reluctant to have any involvement with Yellow Submarine, because they think they thought at first, oh yeah, it's going to be our cartoon selves from that terrible TV show. But of course, there were other plans. We'll get to that. I do some stuff I wanted to ask you specifically about the film. In a world where Beatles books are a genre of literature unto itself, and I know that you've said before that this wasn't the first book on the cinema of the Beatles. What made you decide at this stage that the world needed another Beatles book and specifically a book about the Beatles as film stars? Okay. Well, I mean, my first book was on Bob Dylan. And then not too many years later, my second book was on the Beatles on the Let It Be album and a bit about the film. And that book is a part of the 33 and a third series. And so I knew when I was done that I would someday probably want to do another book on the Beatles. I interviewed a lot of people. I had a lot of research. It's a rich mind to look at. And there's always new things happening even though the group broke up in 1970. And I've had a few false starts over the years, other ideas. I mean, I was almost going to do something sort of Dylan-related again. I had a kind of a Pink Floyd idea I was kicking around. Some other things that became sort of false starts. And then once the Apple started reissuing things again in a big way, in a better way, starting with the 50th anniversary reissues of the Sgt. Pepper album, myself, and I think many other people really kind of started getting back into them again. And I just gradually just started getting more interested in that world again. And then I started thinking, you know, gee, maybe this is the time to do another Beatles book. You know, there's so much interest in them again. And there's so many people who are doing like what you do, you know, podcasters, you know, YouTubers, blogs, so much about the Beatles. And I think you start realizing again and again and again that they're the greatest group ever, that no one is ever going to touch them. So I really am interested in the idea of pop music and film, it really intrigues me This where, where this kind of meets. And so I thought, there hasn't been a book on the Beatles films in quite a while. And I looked around, what's out there? What's been 
out there. I had a lot of books already. The Roy Carr book is one I always bring up, and I think a lot of other people bring up is probably one of the best books on the films of the Beatles. It came out quite a while ago, though. It's a very visual book. I wouldn't say it's just strictly a coffee table book. It has a great narrative. The author did a lot of research. It's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. Sorry to interrupt this for a second. I'm not sure of the Roy Carr Beatles film book. I have a a Roy Carr and is it Tony Tyler book, which might have been the first Beatles book I ever got. I think I know what you're talking about. That's not the book I'm talking about. This book, I think it's called... I'm getting older and I I don't remember all the titles. You know, there's (laughs) hundreds of books, but it's like a soft cover paperback oversized sort of coffee table book. It's not very thick, but it's thick enough. It's an excellent, excellent book. And so I also thought, you know, these other books that came out before the movies have been reissued on not VHS, but on DVD, on Blu-ray, obviously, except for Let It Be. And also all of the soundtrack reissues that have come out on CD and on vinyl. With the Magical Mystery Tour reissue, you get the movie on DVD and Blu-ray in a nice booklet, but also you get the, a replica of the original EP that came out in England. I just thought this is the time to do this. It wasn't like something I was aggressively looking to do, but I ran into an editor that I know at Book Expo in the spring of 19 and mentioned the idea to him. And his company had just been purchased by a larger company. And as soon as I, you know, he asked me, yeah, what, what's going on? Because we knew each other through publishing, but he also knew I was someone who, you know, has written about music. So he's, well, what are you up to? Anything going on? Meaning, and any book ideas? I said, well, you know, actually I do have an idea. And I told him I'd like to do a book on the Beatles films. And right away he was great idea. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. And so while you, you have to go through all the machinations of book publishing, signing contracts and all of that stuff, it takes time, but pretty much within a few months, I'm already outlining and getting into it. And I always forget the sequence of all this. It gets announced about the Get Back series. And so I'm like, oh, this is just perfect. I mean, (laughs) I couldn't be any luckier. You know, it's just these, sometimes these things are just luck. It's just serendipity. You just kind of fall into it. But then, of course, literally, as I'm finally signing the contract, COVID hits and we all go into lockdown, which changed things. But also it's sort of like, okay, so I'm stuck home. I have to write a book. I've got hundreds of books on the Beatles. (laughs) So, all right, this kind of works. Not knowing what we know now, how long lockdown was. The book itself changed in terms of what it became because once I started doing research and had all that time, you know, what was going to be a 200 page manuscript ends up being the final is what you have in your hands is about 350 pages. And actually, what I wrote was closer to 500. And then the deadline kept getting extended, which again, that was great because of COVID and because they kept delaying Get Back. It was originally going to be a movie. You know, then it was going to be a series. Then it was going to come out at this date. Then it was going to come out at that date. And so all these delays just gave me more time to write the book and do my research and try to interview people and try to write the best book, you know, that I could possibly make. That's kind of what happened. That's kind of the, the sort of process. I mean, my other books, I did not have as much time. From idea to publication is about four years. The research and the writing is maybe 
it's hard to say two and a half to three years, maybe longer. So my two previous books, I did not have that much time to write them. They were also much shorter books. The first book is a coffee table book that's very photographic. It's a lot of photographs. And the Let It Be book, as you know, those pocket little 33 and a third books, the whole idea of those books is their brief little short books that you could literally, you could read it in an afternoon if, if you're a speed reader. Tell me, uh, how did you find America? Turn left to Greenland. Has success changed your life? Yes. I'd like to keep Britain tidy. Are you a mod or a rocker? Um, no, I'm a mocker. I want to ask if you knew in advance how you wanted the format of this book to read. Having read through the book, it's more about factual, chronological order of what happened, as well as putting into social context. You talk a lot about, in the early part of the book, what other films were being made in England. So putting the Beatles films in context of other cinema. And I want to talk a little bit more about that as well, because I bought this book wondering, oh yeah, I wonder if there's going to be like a subjective assessment as to the merits of the actual films. And by and large, there's not much of that in the book. You've pretty much stuck to this is what happened. This is what else was going on at the time. Why did you decide, right, I'm not going to play film critic and talk about the merits of these films? I'm going to kind of jump around, but I'll, I'll answer your questions. I mean, I set out to do it, first of all, chronologically, linear. There was, that was definite, okay? I don't think that initially I knew that I was going to have so much context in the book about other films of the 60s, particularly British films. You know, I don't think I was going to necessarily have as much sort of sociocultural context. And same goes for other music that was going on. But as I went along, I just felt like this was the right way to do this because it's it be, then it becomes like a history of the Beatles. And I think what it did is it sort of underpinned and reinforced a sort of loose thesis that I had, it, it, not necessarily right in the beginning, of I wanted to make it clear to people that these books, I'm sorry, that these films didn't just happen in a vacuum. It isn't just the Beatles, or it isn't in the case of the first two films, you know, the Beatles and Richard Lester. There were a lot of people that worked on these films. There was a lot that the Beatles influenced, but also also influenced them musically, but also these films. I mean, they're very much, there's this give and take that go back and forth. And, you know, film is very much a collaborative art form that it takes a lot of people to make a movie. Well, the Beatles made their music primarily with four guys and George Martin and an engineer or two or three. Okay. And yeah, later on, Eric Clapton and orchestras and Billy Preston and all that. It's a much smaller group of people that make a record. Okay. Where a film is, a, you know, look, anybody you've watched the film, no matter how old the film is, there's a long list of credits of people. I wanted to find out who are these people and give them their credit, give them their due. On a sort of aesthetic level, I consider myself a journalist. I don't consider myself a critic whatever that even means. I like journalism. I like facts, history, context. I'll, I'll make observations. I'll suggest something could be better or didn't work out or something, but I do it with a very light touch and I do it very infrequently. I just prefer that way of doing things. There's a book on the Beatles called Revolution in the Head that's considered one of the best, right, one of, considered one of the best books on the Beatles. And it's very much a very sort of critical kind of analysis sort of book. And it's, it's not my favorite because it's one one person's critical analysis. Now, I'm not suggesting I don't like the book or it's a bad book. I'm just saying for me, from my perspective, I prefer to get a lot of the history, the facts, 
the talking heads, the people who were there. And then I'll make up my mind what I think of Revolver. You know, I'll make up my mind what I think of the Beatles for sale. You know, for example, there are books that are more critical that I do like. I also did not want to write a scholarly book. I'm not a scholar. I'm not a professor. And sometimes those kind of books can leave me a little dry. I consider myself just an average reader. I'm not reading something to get some kind of scholarly take on things. Those books are great, though, for people like me who are writers for research. And I mean, that's in many respects what they're intended for. And they're also to, they're for professors. What is it? Publish or perish. That's what they do. It's part of the process. So, you know, some people have suggested literary people use the word literary up front here, which I find amusing. You know, some of the people who reviewed the book who are not music people or Beatles people or film people, but are more sort of literary people, they found that maybe there were too many facts in the book that maybe it could have benefited by more analysis, more sort of criticism. I mean, it's so easy to criticize, say, Magical Mystery Tour. Okay, it's been criticized to death. It's easy to sort of criticize Let It Be. And I guess to some degree, there's things about Yellow Submarine and Help that you can be very critical of. Of of the five films, A Hard Day's Night really is the only one that sort of escapes any kind of really major sort of negative criticism. So I didn't really want to write that book. I wanted to do the research and I wanted to put the information out. And it's like, I think sometimes what I do too, when I write is I think to myself, okay, if I was reading this, meaning what I'm writing, would it interest me? I write what I think would interest me. And people who just go on and on and on and on and on and on with criticism sometimes doesn't work for me. Now that doesn't mean there's any, there's a problem with it. I'm just talking about me. I don't particularly like pistachio ice cream, but there's nothing wrong with pistachio ice cream. Okay. There's nothing against it, (laughs) but I just prefer chocolate. You know what I'm saying? It's not a negative thing. I've worked for so many years more as a journalist. I think that what ends up happening is I think sometimes with some criticism, it becomes where you're looking to be critical. You're looking to criticize. So I'm probably overstating this to some degree, but I think what has happened with me too, it probably complements this or it goes part and parcel with it, is I think that in the last, I don't know if I would say 10 years, maybe not quite that long, I don't really write as much about new music anymore as a journalist. I mostly write about reissues or I write about music books that tend to be histories or I write about music films that tend to be documentaries. So I think that as a journalist, I think part of who I am, I think I've become a little bit of a historian and I I hesitate to use that word because that sounds like somebody who went to, you know, Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard and and has a PhD in European history or something. And that's not, again, that's not who I am, but I I enjoy sort of the history. It's almost like what I did with the Let It Be book is Let It Be is a documentary film. So my sort of approach to writing it, the sort of way that I wrote it, the sort of process or the the, the way that I kind of approach it was it's a documentary. It made sense. The film is a documentary. So I sort of wrote it like a documentary on paper. And that worked in this case too. I really enjoy social and cultural history too. So I wanted to kind of flex that muscle a little bit. And so so you're spending a 
lot of time saying, okay, so the Beatles made this movie and here's what happened while they were making the movie. Oh, and this film was also out at the time and this music and these people were doing this in San Francisco. So I made some, like I mentioned some things about help that I, I thought, and I know that film has some issues in this reflective kind of politically correct world. You know, the Beatles, Peace and Love, and there's at the end, there's a lot of like guns and tanks and stuff. And I did kind of point that out. I don't know if I really pointed out some of the sort of cringy kind of sort of culturally inappropriate stuff that goes on in it, which I think we all know about, which is done with a very light touch. And at that time was not really things that people thought about. I mean, now we think about these things and that's for the most part, I think, good. Although sometimes I think it can be a little heavy handed and I don't want to have a conversation about that. I did point out certain things, but I really didn't want to play critic. But what I did do is I let other people who are critics, I let them have their say. Like I would quote from the New York Times or or New York Magazine or Halliwell's Film Guide or whatever. So I would put that in, but I would give a few different quotes. So it isn't just what I think. So you're getting differing opinions to give a little bit more background where it isn't just a history. And I I was lucky to get an interview with Cameron Crowe, and he sort of offers his kind of take on each film, which was a really, I thought, a great thing to have, because I don't think there's anybody alive who has a sense of the understanding of rock music culture and music and film. I mean, you could certainly mention Marty Scorsese, you know, for sure. I think if Jonathan Demme was still alive, you could put him in in that category too. And there's probably some other people that you could add to that list, but I think the ones that I mentioned are very much at the top. I mean, with Cameron, music is integral to every single film and music culture. Where Scorsese, yeah, music's important and some of his films are music films, but he's making the movie first. You know what I'm saying? Then there's films where he has people scoring the film, whether it's Robbie Robertson or Bernard Herrmann. I know that's a long, long-winded answer, you know, or answers to your question or questions, but I mean, I think what happens too is, and then I'll, we can move on, is I think what you're doing is as you go along, the information that you uncover changes your mind about things and informs the way that you're writing the book and what the sort of process is, what the format is, what your take is. So much of, I think, what goes on in book publishing these days is form, is what is, you're reading a book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, what is the form? Like, if it's nonfiction, are you reading an oral biography? Are you reading a scholarly critical analysis? If it's fiction, are you reading a certain genre of fiction? Is the author doing a certain thing, quote unquote, that you can either put your finger on or not? Form is so important to the way things are written these days. Everything has to have a form. It isn't just like, oh, this is a novel. Oh, this is a literary novel. This is a mystery. This is science fiction. Everything is narrowed. You know, we live in a culture where everything that's sort of art and entertainment is it's it becomes narrower and narrower and narrower what it is. And it can't be too much. Like the fact that I wrote about five films, there are some, there may be some people in the publishing business who would say, oh, we would never do that. It's got to be about only one film. You know, we would never do that. And I'm, that's not a judgment. I'm not judging that. I'm just saying that's just the nature of things. So I know that's a lot. That's a, that's a handful, but that's really, the, I think the only way I can really answer it. It's been a
remember, I don't know, when would it have been? Sometime in the 90s, I guess, where one of our local repertory cinemas had a double feature of Help and Hard Day's Night. I went with about 10 people to see this and really most of the other people were either casual Beatles fans to oh yeah I remember one or two of their songs type of thing so I was the only Beatles fanatic who went along to that and we came out and people were saying you're letting your love of their music your obsession with their music cloud your vision as to whether these are actually good pieces of film we had a couple of laughs but these films are not actually any good natural for a whole bunch of reasons i disagree with their assessment but have you ever had those situations where someone's gone and said to you steve yeah the beatles okay but these are not great pieces of cinema regardless of whether their taste extends to european art house or the most popular tentpole films of the day you know have, has right. anyone ever gone and said to you go on justify your love of these as good pieces of film yeah here's how i'll kind of answer it this way a hard day's night is a great film so let's just we'll put that aside for a moment you know yellow submarine is one of the very first full-length animated films made for adults i think film history and film critics in general would say that's a very good film is it a great film definitely not help is kind of if it, it, it depends on what your taste is i love 60s british films i love spy movies i love 60s british spy spoofs so i i sort of come to help with that so for me it just works and I just enjoy it and it's just it's entertaining it's not Citizen Kane it's not the red shoes okay you know what I'm saying it's not the third man this is not a great motion picture but it is if you like that you know some people don't like it don't they don't like spy movies at all they're just not into it they don't like spy spoofs it's just not their thing so I come to it not so much well I'm a big Beatles fan but I'm that guy so yeah Magical Mystery Tour is it's weird but it's it's 45 minutes. It's kind of a precursor to sort of MTV and videos. It's an avant-garde underground film. And a lot of avant-garde underground films, unfortunately, at the end of the day, don't work, you know, or don't hold up very well. But I think they're significant in moving film forward. You know, you have to remember, Magical Mystery Tour comes out before Easy Rider, okay? Two totally different films. And Easy Rider is a great movie and a groundbreaking movie that changes cinema in the 60s. But these kinds of films that came before Easy Rider are partially what paved the way. And as individual sort of video set pieces of illustrating visually those songs from Magical Mystery Tour, that's what it is. It's like a video album is kind of what it is, which is something the Beatles considered doing for Sgt. Pepper. And I talk about that in the book. Now, Let It Be, it's a documentary. That's really all it is. And it's kind of dull and it's kind of dark. When it first came out, it's viewed through this prism of, oh, the Beatles broke up. So it's the Beatles breakup movie. Even though after that period, they went and did Abbey Road, which is a great album. So yeah, when you watch it, it is kind of like, I remember when I first watched it, it was sort of like, yeah, that, you know, okay, whatever. I'm going to go off track here a little bit. I remember when we discovered Pink Floyd through Dark Side of the Moon, we really didn't know who they were. We had heard about them, but when Dark Side of the Moon happened, everybody heard about it because everybody bought that album. <laughs> it was everywhere. And then they put out in the movies right after it, like on the heels of it, Pink Floyd at Pompeii. I, I think that's the name of it. I don't know the exact name of it. 
this is Pink Floyd before Dark Side of the Moon. And I remember we went to see it because, wow, Pink Floyd, we love Pink Floyd. And it was like, what is this? You know, what is this? I don't know any of this music. It's just these four guys in this empty amphitheater playing these songs that we don't know. Now, in retrospect, now I know all that music. And in, in some respects, my favorite Pink Floyd music is you can start with the first album. You can start with Piper at the Gates of Dawn with Sid Barrett. That's kind of my favorite. It's context, too. You know, other than A Hard Day's Night and maybe to some degree Yellow Submarine, these are not major cinematic experiences. I mean, they're just, if you're a Beatles fan, I think you tend to maybe not like all of them, but you're not going to, other than Let It Be, probably, and, and unless the sort of psychedelic thing turns you off, I think there's certain people who are, are not necessarily fans of the Beatles psychedelic period. Believe it or not, there are some who just, it's just not their thing. Show me these people, Steve. <laughs> I, I know. I mean, it, it, I'm, I think it's a small group, but I think there are some who just, they sort of like, oh yeah, Sergeant Pepper is great, but then they go out a little bit. It's not their favorite. They choose to not go down that rabbit hole for whatever reason. They don't bring a certain sensibility to it, if you can read between the lines. You know, everybody's got their opinion. Like I said before, I don't really like pistachio ice cream, but you know, so what? Who cares? If you like it, go with it. I mean, there's certain groups that I don't like, certain artists I don't like that I know are great. I know they're great, mm-hmm. but it just it's just not me. You know, while I can be a little opinionated <laughs> about these things, it's funny. I think sometimes I'm more opinionated when I'm having a conversation with someone than I am in print, which is, I, I don't understand that. It's now on the record. We've got you. It's now on, on the record. We've got you on tape. So you've got me. <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> you know? There you go. Hey, pardon me for asking, but who's that little old man? Uh, what little old man? That little old man. Oh, that one, that's my grandfather. Your grandfather? Yeah. That's not your grandfather. It is, you know. But I've seen your grandfather. He lives in your house. Oh, that's my other grandfather, but he's my grandfather as well. How do you reckon that one out? Well, everyone's entitled to two, aren't they? And it's my other one. We know that, but what's he doing here? Well, my mother thought the trip would do him good. How's that? He's nursing a broken heart. Ah, poor old thing. Hey, mister. Are you nursing a broken heart? He's a nice old man, isn't he? It's very clean. Let's go back to the start of their cinematic exploits. Obviously, A Hard Day's Night was not the first movie to try and capitalise on a popular artist of the day before the fad boiled over. Forgetting musicals of, say, you know, the pre-war and World War II era, and just thinking about rock and roll films, there were the films of Elvis Presley, films like The Girl Can't Help It with Little Richard, Fats Domino and Gene Vincent, Don't Knock the Rock with Bill Haley and Twist Around the Clock. And in England, there were the films of Cliff Richard and Billy Fury. And these films just seem to have been made to capitalize on the presumed 15 minutes before that became an expression of the fame of rock and roll and it didn't matter who the puppet was that was going to be performing it. So with the poor track record of rock and roll music and cinema from a qualitative perspective, I mean, this might sound like an unusual question, but why would the Beatles have wanted 
wanted to make a film like A Hard Day's Night to begin with, because with you know with Elvis having made a lot of shitty films, and that was not doing his name or brand, as the kids like to say nowadays, uh, any good. The Beatles were you know, the biggest thing since sliced bread, and they were going to make a film that could have potentially hurt them. But instead, they went ahead and we're going to get Richard Lester and we're going to get Alan Owen and we like their work. But there was still the risk that it could have just been made as another shitty film that was going to say, right, we're going to take our money and run with this. And if it's crap, it doesn't matter. We'll make a bit of money. And then whatever happens to the band afterwards, we don't care because we got our money from making this film. So it's speculative. Well, maybe it's not. I don't know. But why do you think that the Beatles, with all the knowledge of what had come before, were willing to make a film? Of course, as you say, it became like you know, the whatever the citizen kane of rock and roll movies as i think the quote has it but why do you think that the beatles would wanted to have made a film was it just for a laugh well i think that there's sort of two separate camps here i mean there's sort of like brian who knows that this will make the, the beatles even bigger and more popular and spread the word and it's good for business and then of course there's uh, united artists who they just want the soundtrack album they figure they can make some money on that they had they had really a very well-developed record label united artist records that had put out a lot of soundtrack albums that were selling in bushels and so that's how they saw it i think what happened is in terms of why it was good some of it was just pure luck and serendipity and it just kind of worked out i mean united artists approach to making films back then was very different than other film companies i've talked about this in, in other interviews i've done and in the book is they were not like a film studio with a back lot in Hollywood, like you know Warner Brothers or Paramount or whatever. They were like a distributor, more like film is today. You know, they would hire people and they would make films, and United Artists would distribute it. Essentially, that's kind of how it worked. So, th so the right, fortunately, the right company came along and they hired the right guy to produce it, which was Walter Shenson. And mostly in hiring Richard Lester, the timing was perfect because Lester had made a comedy. He had made a music film. He had worked with the goons. He had television experience. He was an American in England. He was a really smart guy. Super, super smart guy. He went to the University of Pennsylvania in America, which is like an Ivy League college. And so the whole idea too of this guy, Alan Owen, who was a playwright, he wasn't a screenwriter, he was a playwright. So this is another guy who's a smart guy if he's writing plays. And he was a guy from Liverpool. He understood the sort of Liverpool culture. And then he kind of went and observed them and started writing his script. And then I think what happens is it's Lester's kind of genius for comedy and Lester's kind of cinema verite approach, shooting it in black and white. I think part of that too was very influenced by the French New Wave. It's a great time in film in terms of all these amazing films coming out of France, Italy, Sweden. So it's all just kind of lining up. And then I think the sort of the music makes it. The Beatles are playing themselves for the most part. Okay. Some of it is kind of cartoonish, kind of glib reflections of each one of them's personality. It just kind of all works and it's all just the right timing. And I also think that they probably also thought too, well, this is not going to be like those other movies. Just like our music is not like anybody else's music. It was the same kind 
kind of idea. We're the Beatles. We're different. They had a lot of musical clout at this point. They could kind of throw their weight around a little bit. And I think the music works and just the sort of interaction between the four of them. I mean, a lot of that is just who they are. These four guys. I mean, this is ridiculous to even state this. Everybody knows it. There's just magic. It's just these four guys. There's just something there. Here we are. It's how many years ago did they break up, make their last album? And we're still talking about them. We're still writing books, still writing articles. New generations keep discovering them. There's just something, some of it that's there. It's like fairy dust. You can't really put your finger on it. You can't really say why it works or why it doesn't work necessarily. It's all just kind of perfect. Every record company turns them down and Brian meets George Martin. Some of it is just luck. I mean, nobody ever wants to admit that. Nobody ever wants to admit like you have to make your own luck and hard work. And sometimes it's just, it's a roll of the dice. I mean, what would have happened if the Beatles did sign to Decca Records? Would They wouldn't have worked with George Martin. We know that. Would they have still been the Beatles? Yeah, probably. But it worked with George Martin and they knew it and they worked with him on just about everything they did except for a few things here and there and, and let it be. Brian comes along when he does. And just the fact that Pete Best gets kicked out and Ringo comes in and Stu Sutcliffe decides, I don't want to do this. I don't want to, I want to stay here in Hamburg. I want to be an artist. You know, it's all of these things. Yeah, there was they, they were ambitious guys. They were really talented. They worked really hard. They really stuck to it. It took them a while before they became the Beatles, but some of it, it's kind of fairy dust. And to go back to what you were talking about before, about how some of the other films are kind of like, eh, they're really not so great. Well, there's that. So A Hard Day's Night, in many respects, unfortunately, is you know almost the peak of their film career. If you really want to look at it that way, it's almost like they make the first movie and then it's all downhill. I adore Help. I, I mean, maybe it's Me too. A, I'm, a, I'm a product of when I first saw it as a 10-year-old, but I watched it again the other day, had the DVD from when that came out, and I'm still adoring it and I still see its influence. I, I imagine that the members of the Python team, of course, mind you, they were influenced by the goons, as we all know, but I imagine that Eric Idle watched this and that said, this gives me permission to write the sort of stuff I'm going to do. But let's go for a moment with the fact that it's not as well regarded in the wider populace. If Help had been their first film, would we have seen any? Well, of course, there was the, the UA contract, so we might have seen more films, don't know. But would their trajectory have been different, do you think? Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. So much younger than today I never needed anybody's help in any way But now these days are gone I'm not so self-assured Now I find a change of mind I'll open up the doors that's a good question. I don't really know if I can really answer it. I mean, I think that they made A Hard Day's Night. I think that was going to be the first movie, A Day in the Life of the Beatles. And, and we're not going to make up some dopey story. We're not going to make it where they're just the group that shows up at the end of the dance kind of thing. Like, that's what it was. So then you're done with that. So, okay, now what do we do? Different ideas were batted around. 
And I go into this in great depth in the book, the section on a hard day's night, which is the longest part of the book, by the way, the longest section. It's really six sections. There's a whole sort of pre-Beatles history up front that isn't that long. And then I take on the five films, pretty much. That's the basic for anybody out there who wants to you know, understand what this book is. So A Hard Day's Night is the longest part of the book. And so help. Okay, well, we just did that movie thing. And yeah, we're kind of over that. And yeah, what are we going to do now? And you know what? We're on to other things. Yeah, we've just discovered the pleasures of tea. We're writing these songs now that are a little bit more sophisticated. I mean, this is a peak, I think, music period for the Beatles very much. It's after the covers albums or covers period and after A Hard Day's Night where they finally make an entire album of all Lennon and McCartney songs. They kind of rush through sort of Beatles for Sale. And it's kind of like the singles that are coming out. I mentioned this on another interview I did. The singles that are coming out in this kind of period, this 1965, are just in just some of the best music. Perfect. Post-Beatlemania, pre-psychedelic. You're in this middle period where they are really have developed as songwriters, Lennon and McCartney. You know, they've really, and George is just starting to get going. But John and Paul are really like, I mean, they are firing on all cinders here. I mean, they are just happening. The music in it is just, it's great. It's fun. It's just, you know what? Check your brain at the door. It's not a David Lynch film, okay? It's not Fellini. Uh, it's not an Ingmar Bergman movie. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, Steve. I'd probably, and this will be sacrilege, I'll probably prefer to watch Help over Eight and a Half. <laughs> But okay. All I'm, right. I'm, well, I'm, everybody's. I've checked, I've checked my film lover's card at the door. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's that's what I mean about this stuff. It's everybody's got opinions. And it's like, I mean, I think I use the films to as a way to tell the history of the Beatles because it really does take you through not all of the history, all the sort of pre A Hard Day's Night stuff. As far as Beatles history, I give a very short amount of space to that. But the films take you through. From a hard day's night, it takes you through to the end. And I don't get into any great depth about Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sgt. Pepper, which are the, probably the three best Beatle albums, arguably. So that was tough to do. I had to kind of do that. I mean, I do talk about those albums here and there when it's relevant or just to fill in the gaps and the blanks in between. There is a lot of this conversation about help. You know, it's funny. I mentioned, again, I mentioned this on another interview. I recently did a talk at, a, at an art house theater where they showed A Hard Day's Night. We did a quick introduction, we showed the movie, and then I answered questions. And I don't know how many people asked during the question part or afterwards, so when are you going to show help? When are you going to show help? When are you going to show help? I can't tell you how many people were like, wow. yeah, okay, great. So now show help. <laughs> so for all the problems with it, I think that I people probably haven't seen help on the big screen and who knows how long. A Hard Day's Night is owned by the Karsh family and they've done a great job in sort of keeping the legacy of it alive in terms of the restorations and the reissues and showing it in movie theaters. Help is owned by the Karsh family and Apple and the Beatles. So my guess is the Beatles, Apple, 
they're preventing, maybe preventing is too strong a word. They're probably the ones who are saying, yeah, we don't really want help shown in, in movie theaters. Okay. I don't really know that for sure, but people want to see it. You know, there's people who've never seen it. I mean, I, if you if you own a DVD player or a Blu-ray player, you could see it. Or if you've got a friend that has a DVD or a Blu-ray player, you can see it. But there are people that haven't seen it. I'm amazed that people I know who are like music people that are really into music, they don't have a Blu-ray player. Like, how do you not have a Blu-ray player? I just think there's a lot of people who are just curious. I think help is sort of like, it's a time capsule. It's kind of like you can go and visit that place. You can go to 1965 and hang out with the Beatles in London and in the Bahamas and Austria. It's like, it's a time machine is what it is. It transports you to this place. How do you feel? I used to use my hands. He used to use his hands. His hands, will he still be able to draw me? Did he do a lot of it? Voltage. Up. I'm no mean hand at the old sticksman stuff myself, you know. The voltage. Up, 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 up. Hey, he's calling you. Up, 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 up. up. I think Magical Mystery Tour does that to some degree. That that movie theater that I mentioned, they have shown at different times, like they'll do a whole night of like Beatle clips. And one time they did it and they showed Blue Jay Way from Magical Mystery Tour, that section of it. Mm -hmm. And as soon as it starts, as soon as the visual comes on and the music comes on, you could hear in the movie theater people going, oh, there's like this hush, like, oh, wow. So I don't know how bad it can be. I mean, some of these people, I think, obviously had seen it, but maybe hadn't seen it in a while. Or some people were like, oh, wow, this is cool. Or like, oh, I've heard that song. And they don't even know it's a clip from Magical Mystery Tour. You know, everybody's at a different place with the Beatles. You know, there's the people that, you know, they grew up with the Beatles. They were the same age as the Beatles. Or they were kids, you know, the teenagers. And then there are people that are a little older. Or there are people that come to it 10 years later, 20 years later. There's kids today that are teenagers that are just discovering this music for the first time through Spotify or whatever. We all come into the story in a different place. You know, not everybody comes into it in the same place with the same sort of background or or perspective. I'm curious to get your thought on this as to why it appears that in the wake of a hard day's night, so coming back to that, pop music films after that seem to still revert to the let's put on a show type of approach to films. So in advance of our discussion, I got to watch Ferry Cross the Mersey, the Jerry and the Pacemakers film. And that came out in 1965, the same year as Hell, but a year after Hard Day's Night. But this is one of those, how do we get here type of films, uh, which I know that the band Madness also did in uh, the late 70s. But I love um, them. What's not to love? Uh, yeah. Uh, was I don't know. In your mind, do you think that it was just something about the Beatles that they insisted? Well, we need this writer. We need Alan Owen. We need Dick Lester. But Ferry Cross the Mersey is just another pop film meant to capitalize on a band's popularity. Why do you think that in the industry there was no? Oh, this is a pointer to the direction that we need music films to go. Well, I think that in their minds, whoever the direct film people were who were making these films, I think they felt, oh, okay, they're British musicians. They're from Liverpool. It's in black and white. Oh, it's just like a hard day's night. But they're not Dick Lester or they don't have that sensibility. They're just not going to 
wisely so, not just repeat the exact formula. Okay. You have to remember too that, you know, obviously films take time to make. So by the time people see A Hard Day's Night and decide, oh, we should make one of these. Okay. Well, then you have to get everything together. You got to sign a deal and get the money and the director and write a script. And it takes time to do all of these things. So by the time then it's shot, edited, and then it goes out to the world, all this time has passed. And so, yeah, it's a little dated at this point. But I think there were other films that were going on that were maybe starting to move forward a little bit. I think that really not feature films in terms of non-documentaries, but documentary films, I think, were starting to get a little bit more sort of interesting music documentary films. Don't look back. Right. That's what I was going to mention. Mm. So, you know, that kind of becomes the, the next kind of step. So instead of A Hard Day's Night, which is a fictitious A Day in the Life, Don't Look Back is Bob Dylan, you know, A Day in the Life. It's a documentary. Now, it helps when it's D.A. Pennybaker directing it, one of the greatest, if not the greatest director of music or pop music documentary films. Murray Lerner's Festival, which I mentioned in the book, is kind of a, it's important. He made a film of the Newport Folk Festivals. That holds up very well. So things take time. It's like I said, by the time A Hard Day's Night comes out, if you snapped your fingers and put a deal together and did everything, it's still going to take a year. You got to shoot it, edit it, distribute it, get it out there. So that's one of the unfortunate things about film is that it takes time to make a movie. And when you're in an era like the 60s, where cultural change was so rapid, it's hard for film to kind of keep up. The only way to keep up is to be ahead. And that's what A Hard Day's Night was. That's what Easy Rider was. There was nothing really out there like Easy Rider. Yeah, there had been Roger Corman's sort of exploitation films, biker films, you know, rebellious kind of teenage juvenile delinquent kind of films, because that's sort of what Easy Rider is. And some of the people involved in it, including Jack Nicholson, come from that world. Peter Fonda, they had made, they had been a part of, of those kinds of movies. They traveled in the same circles of those people. They were in Hollywood on the fringes with AIP too. that company. Some of this stuff that was already kind of happening. And I, and I talk a lot about this, you know, the beach movies. So while it all seems so groundbreaking and why isn't everybody coming up with another hard day's night right away, there are kind of things going on, but in some respects, they don't have the weight or the popularity or they don't reach this kind of critical mass. You have some really interesting films and interesting, you know, it's funny because I think what happened in this period is you were getting more sort of interesting things, obviously, like I said before, from France, from Italy, from Sweden, wherever. But in America, you were getting things that were a bit more interesting or rebellious or more reflective of youth culture, but they weren't coming from the major film studios. They didn't star Rock Hudson. They weren't directed by George Kukar. They were underground filmmakers or people that were just making biker movies or just making beach movies or, you know, that kind of stuff because they wanted to do, they didn't have money. So what do we do? And they already knew there's all these kids out there that want to go to the movies that don't want to see The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins. These educated 60s kids who they weren't quite psychedelic yet, but, you know, we had lived through the beats and, you know, folk music opened a lot of people's eyes culturally and socially to things. So this stuff was all bubbling. There was hippies were already sort of happening in 65 and 66. You know, the Grateful Dead were the warlocks in San Francisco in probably 1965. 
alive. You had the Great Society and you had some of these other things that were happening that were pre-67, pre-66, but they weren't known to the masses or these people hadn't made movies yet or they were so underground. You know, you had Andy Warhol making movies that would be part of this. You know, you had these underground, these film communities, you know, Jonas Makis in New York City, you know, showing weird avant-garde films. There's a film called, was it Pull the Daisy or Don't Pull the Daisy or something? And Jack Kerouac and David Amran did the music. And these things are there, but they're not popular. The Beatles were popular. Everybody knew who the Beatles were. Teenagers knew who the Beatles were. Their albums were selling in the millions. They were on Ed Sullivan. Now, Jack Kerouac was not, you know, reciting poetry on the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah, he was reciting poetry on the Steve Allen Tonight Show because Steve Allen was a hip, cool guy who was also a musician. But it's all different things happening at different points. So again, I think the people that were making interesting films at this period were underground or sort of underground, or they were youth films, or they were making things that were ahead, already ahead of the curve, past a hard day's night, way, way past a hard day's night. Have you ever read anything that said why the Rolling Stones, for example, never made any narrative film? I mean, you spit and you'll hit like about 10 different Rolling Stones concert films or documentaries. There's so much out there, you know, like uh, Charlie's My Darling and Ladies and Gentlemen, The Rolling Stones, Gimme Shelter, Cocksucker Blues, and probably about another half a dozen that I can't even think of. But this seems to be every time they do a concert, boom, there's a movie camera. There's always something pointing at them, but they never did a narrative film. Was it because they were too cool to do that sort of thing? It didn't fit their hardened image or would it have just been seen as, oh, we're following in the trail of the Beatles again? Had you ever heard anything yeah. about that? I mean, some of it just didn't happen. I mean, I talk a little bit about this in the book. Maybe I didn't get into the where's or the or more the why's of why it didn't happen. The Rolling Stones had some false starts and I talk about this in the book a little bit. I don't necessarily get into the why's it didn't happen. It just Sometimes things just don't happen. They go through a certain process. I talk about this, not at any great length, but I do I do get into this. It's a very short section of why it didn't happen. And now your hosts for this evening, the Rolling Stones. But I did investigate that and I did write about it. Again, it's a it's a 350-page book. I don't remember most of it at this point. You know, <laughs> it's like it's a long damn book. You know what I mean? Mark Lewison probably remembers every word he's ever written. There is Mark Lewison and then there is everybody else except for maybe Bruce Spicer or Ken Womack. Mark should be knighted. I don't understand like how he has not been knighted yet, but I, I'm going to start the Mark Lewison should be knighted campaign. And I don't say that as a joke. I'm serious. He is a serious journalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he is a journalist and historian. His knowledge of the Beatles and the depths of it. And I don't know if you've ever met him or had any kind of interaction with him. But he is the nicest guy in the world. And he is always willing to help others like myself who toil in this Beatle place as, you know, an author. He's always encouraging. He's very passionate about it. And I can't wait for the next volume to come out. Here it is, the giant jazz musical you've been waiting for. Ring-a-ding rhythm. With the most exciting lineup of top jazz bands and singers ever jammed into one film spectacular. And introducing England's sensational Helen Shapiro. Hey! 
Let's talk a bit about Dick Lester himself. When we think of the Beatles in cinema, it's always Richard Lester's name who comes in. Until Get Back came out, we didn't sort of associate, oh yeah, Michael Lindsay Hogg directed Let It Be because that film is not so much in the public eye and you can't find it anywhere streaming, uh, official DVD, unless you've got like an old laser disc. VHS or nothing. VHS. It does show up once in a while on YouTube and then gets taken down. I have a bootleg uh, DVD, so I was yeah, able to- Yeah, I've got a great bootleg of it. I was able to gave me years to ago. It. But let's just talk you know, for a few minutes about Dick Lester. And as you said, he'd gone and done the running, jumping, standing still film. And right. for, for this- discussion i found online on youtube a copy of its trad dad and got to watch that and that's that's great that's 90 percent about the music and 10 percent about the plot but from a visual style i can see immediately why the beatles were drawn to him and i, I also sort of found it funny in a way because if hard day's night is talking about this is where music is now this is where music is going and the rebellion in its trad dad is weird to me because it's something that you would have thought it shouldn't have happened. The kids are saying we're excited about this music from 40 years ago. We're excited about Dixieland music, but the old people, they said, no, we're not. We don't like this. We This is Eight. this is terrible. This is... <laughs> but it's your music, Grandpa. So, I mean, I, I thought there's no narrative really to speak of. It could be dealt with in three minutes, but the music is great. But I watched this and I thought, I get why the Beatles wanted to work with Dick Lester because visually, it's visually incredible and it shows off a lot of what he then went on to employ in his two subsequent films with the Beatles. Just for those people who haven't read the book yet, just talk us a little bit through uh, Dick Lester's background and how he came to- Okay. To be well, like, like I mentioned before, I mean, he was this really smart guy. You know, he went to UPenn. I think he was going to be a psychologist. He was an accomplished jazz pianist and- he just decided, yeah, I'm going to go to England. America's not cutting it for me. I guess it wasn't challenging enough for something for him. And he had some television experience, which was at that time, television was just starting to get out of its infancy. And it was starting to be a little bit more kind of interesting. And it was actually a good training ground for people who wanted to do something visual that was a bit more interesting, where films were kind of studio films and just typical post-World War II films and cost a lot of money to make a movie movie. It takes a long time to make a movie. You know, TV was quick or live. You know, it was exciting. So Lester arrives in England at just the right time. And he, he works with Peter Sellers and he works with the goons and he works on some of these satirical television shows, which were something that was happening in England that really, it wasn't so much really happening in America. I think in America, it was more sort of, I, I think talk shows were just starting to happen. And it was more like variety shows, more sort of broad comedy where in England, it was sort of a little more interesting. And so he makes a feature-length film, not a music film or a documentary, and then he makes a documentary, and he had been making a lot of commercials, which was another thing that you, that kind of helped him create stuff that was a little more snappy, a little more young, a little more interesting. So he definitely hit it off with the Beatles. So I think he respected them, but I think he didn't sort of like kowtow to them, or he didn't just like bow down, oh, you're the Beatles. I think they were close enough in age. There is an age disparity there. But I think that it was he was old enough to be I'm the director, but young enough to kind of get it. I don't think he really knew or anybody really knew that this Beatles thing, especially this film we're making, is going to be this thing that changes the world, you know, as smart as he was. 
And actually what's funny is he preferred help. And I think he just figured by the time he made help, well, I already made a movie with these guys. And so now they're going to kind of be more what I want them to be. And I'm more the director and I've got this bigger budget and it's going to be in color. And I've got this bigger cast of all these great actors and we have more time to make it. And the, the pressure is off because we made A Hard Day's Night and it was great and everyone loves it. When they were making A Hard Day's Night, they didn't know what they had. I think for him that they're kind of two films, they're kind of one almost to him. It's Beatles A and Beatles B, and then he moves on. You know, he's out, so to speak. He's not part of their world anymore, but he continues on to make great movies. He becomes an important film director. He makes a movie between A Hard Day's Night and Help. He's an important movie director of the 70s, of the 60s, particularly of comedies. And, you know, I've said this in other interviews too. Sometimes he didn't necessarily get the due that he deserved, or even to this day because he's mostly a director of comedies and often people who either direct comedies or write them or appear in them they don't get taken as seriously as people who work on dramatic films necessarily but he is a major influence on a lot of people there's a lot of people that saw those movies and are influenced by those movies there's certain templates that he created and especially in a hard day's night i think he saw help too even more as a collaboration with the filmmaker other filmmakers making the movie with him and and the cast you know he worked with a lot of the same people through the years lester over and over again he almost had his little sort of repertory sort of group of actors and i maybe he he changed a little more in terms of who was behind the camera those people but he kind of dropped out of film and then never really made movies anymore, sort of prematurely. There's a lot of it I didn't realize why he sort of stopped making movies. So maybe I'll just leave that as a little, that'll be a little surprise. Because it was a surprise to me when I did the, that's what's great about doing this. You know, people think, oh, wow, you wrote a book on the Beatles, so you must be an expert. It's like, no, <laughs> you, <learn laughs> you don't get it. It's, hmm. it's like you do the part of why you do these things is to learn, is to educate yourself because you're really interested in this. And it's just what happens because there's stuff you just pick up through osmosis or you read in books and, and that's it. But when you're writing a book, you're taking notes and you're writing and you're editing and you're fact-checking and you're interviewing people and new things come up to add to it or take away from it or you change something. It's a process. It's all a process. One of the things that I think you bring up in the book or you quote someone else in the book in relation to help was that they'd already gone and made that film about 24 hours in the life and they really couldn't do a hard day's night part two they had to do something where the Beatles are characters in a wider arc regardless of whether people think that that wider arc story is any good or not that's the way I've always tended to see it you know it's like we need something different we need a story they need to interact with the wider world a hard day's night is really about the Beatles and their entourage and you know Paul's grandfather and their manager and they're desperate to jump into the wider world. They have that rollicking time jumping up and down to Can't Buy Me Love on the football field, and then they have to go back into their narrow world. Whereas in Help, it's reacting against mad scientists, uh, a cult tribe, 
And, you know, John Lennon, I think, was on the record as saying that he hated it because we were support characters in our own film. But right. I don't see how they could have made another film. And you make that point in the book. Yeah, it had to be something different. And they kicked around different ideas and it evolved. It wasn't like they finished The Hard Day's Night and it's like, okay, here's the script for help. No, they kicked around a lot of different ideas. There was a lot of different possible things. And, and that this is part of what I do with the book in general, too, of the sort of the Beatles movie movies that might have been. And I was careful to the way that I did this. I, I didn't want to just sort of retread some of the ground that's already been talked about, but there were some ways of getting, there was some, there were some ways I couldn't get around it. I think there were some things that were never going to happen. You know, the Joe Ortone film, that was never going to happen. Was that a kind of loving? No, no, no. That's the that's the Western, uh, uh, a right, talent okay. for loving. No, uh, the Joe Ortone, and I forget the title, it's just escaping me for a moment. It's a book and it, it was never going to be a Beatles movie. It was really far out, out there and part of Joe Ortone's world. And all that happened too, where Joe was killed and, you know, all of it. it's It's a whole, I get into all of this in the book. Mm, yes, some of yes. this stuff is just to give potted sort of condensed histories of some of these parts are like... I tried to, you know, some of these things I felt like needed to be explained in detail. Up against it is the Joe Ortone. That's the title. You said that Brian Epstein basically put the kibosh on that, said there was yeah, no yeah, way I'm he, my voice. Yeah, it was it. never going to happen. It was too far out. It was too raw. It was never going to happen. It, was, it, I, it wasn't a Beatles movie. And I, I think he just, he wrote whatever it is he was going to write. I don't think he sat down and said, okay, so the Beatles, what kind of story should I, I don't think he cared. I think he said, I've got some money. I'm going to write whatever I want to write. And that's what happened. I don't, I wasn't there. I don't know, but I would have to say that's probably what happened. A Talent for Loving was a, a Western, was a script that they considered. And I don't know if I would say they strongly considered it, but they were fans of country and Western and of Western movies, especially Ringo. Ringo was a huge fan of Westerns. So I think there was that consideration. You know, they wanted to make the Lord of the Rings. And I, and I talk about all of this in the book, the sort of films that never got made, you know, and I try to put them in context in terms of the chronology. I, I try to fit them in where they belong to. When a man buys a ticket for a magical mystery tour, he knows what to expect. We guarantee him the trip of a lifetime, and that's just what he gets. The Incredible Magical Mystery Tour. Some, something about uh, Magical Mystery Tour, but you've pretty much already sort of gone and covered that, and I don't want to have to tread that ground. I know that you, I, I did hear you on a, another podcast where you made a convincing case, as well as how you've already gone and done in this discussion of its merit, but Let's move on to Yellow Submarine. Now, one of the things I loved reading about in your book was about one of the heroes of the whole story was a fellow called Heinz Edelman, German designer who worked for uh, an avant-garde magazine, but he had no animation experience. But uh, you state in the book that the look of the film and the character design and the brilliant imagination in how the story plays out all feeds off Heinz Edelman. So there was the Eleanor Rigby sequence, which I had read about before, I think years ago in an anniversary edition of Mojo or Uncut magazine. They spoke about, as you do in the book, who the various people were in that Eleanor Rigby sequence. And Heinz Edelman's also responsible for the look of that whole section in while the submarine is traveling through the various seas. And the imagination, I 
love, love, love this film. And I think there should be a case to be made. Not a maybe, not a might be. It is, to me, a brilliant, brilliant film. So for our listeners who haven't read the book yet, just maybe talk a little bit about Edelman and his history, his background, and what he brought to the film. In the town where I was born Lived a man who sailed to sea And he told us of his life In the land of submarines So we sailed on to the sun Till we found Right. He didn't work in film animation. He, he was an illustrator. He worked for these sort of avant-garde kind of German magazines. He was one of these guys who was a little different, a little offbeat. He was an older guy, though. He wasn't young. And he sort of became the guy who, in, in many respects, created some of the key sort of visual elements, the way the film would look. I will say, though, that this was definitely a film that was a collaboration among many, many people. There's no question about it. And I interviewed a number of the people that worked on the film. There are two books out by Dr. Bob Hieronymus, who really gets into depth on the history of Yellow Submarine. And he owns this space. And I was in touch with him and his people, and they were very helpful. I tried to make sure I wasn't going to retread the same ground that they did. He's been responsible for helping keep the film alive and was involved with various ways of getting the restorations off the ground and celebrating the film and working with Apple or the Beatles or whoever it was at the different times. And so it was very, it's unbelievable how many people work on an animated film. I, I didn't know a lot about how animated films were made. But, you know, I learned a certain amount about it. And the film has had a real impact on people like Terry Gilliam. You mentioned the Pythons before and, and others. Edelman was, he was very anti-authoritarian. Uh, he was very anti-Disney. He did not like Disney. So he becomes kind of a key figure. And it's funny, he used to get people would, that's all they wanted to talk about with him. And he really didn't want to have a lot to do with the film for many years because he felt like there was so much more to his career than Yellow Submarine. But then later on, especially as the film was going through a certain kind of revival and, and various anniversaries, he's sort of, okay, yeah, I get it. This is a great movie. And yeah, I was kind of a major part of it. And But, it, but animation is almost more collaborative than regular sort of live action film, I guess is the, the phrase that they use. That section is, is maybe one of the shorter sections in the book, because I feel like uh, Hieronymus has really just covered it. <laughs> I mean, and it's unbelievable. But I like that he gave people their due, and I, I wanted to do that with this section and, and with other parts of the book, too. I've got to confess, I found it probably one of my favorite parts of the book, maybe Good. just because it's a film I've watched countless times and continue to get something out of. And I haven't read the Hieronymus books, but if you reckon that they're the Bibles of Yellow Submarine, I might have to search those out. They're great. Parts of them are very much sort of almost like oral histories, kind of. They're not done in a typical sort of narrative history. They're, they're different. Mm. There's a lot of pictures in there, photographs and illustrations, and and it's it, there's no other film, really, where anybody has gone into this kind of depth in terms of a book. The Doug Sulpey book on Let It Be, Get Back, is great, but not to the degree in terms of how much, how deep Hieronymus goes into the in, in his team, go into Yellow Submarine. There's a great book that we mentioned Mark Lewison, that Mark Lewison was involved in to celebrate A Hard Day's Night. It's a beautiful uh, hardcover book. 
But I think that those two yellow submarine books are, as far as standalone, I don't think anything really goes into such depth. And he wrote the two books pretty far apart in terms of time, when one was published and the next one was published quite a number of years later. So he's able to kind of do some updating kind of too. Really a passion project. Amazing. He's an amazing guy too. He's interviewed me for his radio show and he has a wonderful team that he works with. By Neptune's knickerbockers, she's patted out. Well, maybe we should call a road service. Calm no road. And we're not subscribers. Subscribers. I know something about motors. Let me have a look. Here. Is that the motor? Can't you tell one when you see one? Of course I can. Let me peruse it. Well, what do you think? I think I burnt my finger. I guess we have to talk about let it be slash get back. I'm going to go in a bit of a ramble here, though, for a a couple of moments. Hope you don't mind, Steve. And, And refer to a film... That has nothing to do with the Beatles at all. Have you ever seen the documentary about Wilco called I Am Trying to Break Your Heart? Uh, no. And it's funny because there's so much talk about Wilco right now because I, I think that the uh, uh, Jeff Tweedy's got a, a memoir, an autobiography out, or they have a new mm. album out or something. They have, they have a new album I love, out. I mm. love Wilco. Mm. And I, you know, that's, see, this is what I mean. There's so much people think, oh, you must have seen every movie and read every book and listen. <laughs> the list of stuff that I haven't either read, listened to, or seen far exceeds what I have written, read, seen, or watched. (laughs) That's why we all have five lifetimes to catch up though, isn't it? Um, I wish we did. (laughs) There was something that occurred to me. The film I Am Trying to Break Your Heart was originally going to be just one of those puff pieces about Wilco making their new album at the time, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. And it ended up being a whole lot more because real life sort of stepped in. So before they started making the film, they'd sacked their drummer. That never comes into the film. And I'd really love to know the story about that. But that's right. enough, that's like the enough. record company doesn't like the album and they go to a different record company, I believe. They, I haven't seen the film, but it's interesting that that becomes like their biggest and best album. But I think initially, the, whoever the record label was did not like it. And that was the end of that. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to step on your story there. But well, no, that, that, that's fine. I mean, so yeah, you're right. The record company said, we don't like this album. They'd already gone and paid for it. We're letting you go. And then they end up with another record company, which ends up being swallowed up by Warner's. The same company. record that, company, right. None was, such gets bought out by Warner Brothers, right. I think it is, right. Just this lovely slice of irony. But <laughs> the, the reason why I'm bringing this film up, I'll, I'll come well, I'll come to that in a minute, but one of the other subplots in the film is about, well, I don't know, they, they call it the rivalry between Jeff Tweedy and Jay Bennett. This was Jeff Tweedy's band. Jay Bennett was a multi-instrumentalist and creative, brilliant. Uncle Tupelo splits off into into two groups, right? Well, there, there was Jeff Tweedy going down one, and uh, the other the other band was Sun Vault, which was started. Right, Sun Vault, yeah, I know, I know that. I love that. All their music is great. Yeah, I yeah, saw yeah. Uncle Tupelo many years ago. So oh, wow, yeah, I I'm know that this. too. So yeah, but, but this, but anyway, so the story in I'm Trying to Break Your Heart is a lot of talk about how Jeff Tweedy and Jay Bennett were at each other's throats. And in reality, most of the film shows them being quite creative together. And there's only one moment in the film. I'm not saying this didn't happen on the side that when it wasn't being filmed, or there's only really, to my recollection, only one moment in 
the film where we see Tweedy and Bennett having a go at each other. And then later on the film, we see, spoiler alert, Jade Bennett has been sacked from the band. And there's also a moment where we see him playing in what appears to be like a small club. And apparently, it's shown the irony that Wilco stars on the rise and he's back in the small club. But apparently, that's not so. He's actually in rather a large hall, but the camera doesn't show that. So we get the story that they want to tell. But the point is, everyone, everyone in hindsight has gone and said that, oh, Tweedy and Bennett, they argue all the time. And that's the reason why he's sacked by the end of the film but we don't really see that so coming to the Beatles everyone went and said as you've already gone and pointed out Steve was that oh let it be was it was the end of everything we see Harrison arguing with McCartney and they're all at each other's throats and we don't see that we get one moment of I'll play whatever you want me to play I even won't play if you, if you want well, okay well I don't mind I'll, I'll play you know whatever you want me to play or I won't play at all if you don't want me to play no whatever it is that would please you I'll do it. And they say, oh, it's a very dark film. And it's not really. I rewatched it for this. And I mean, everyone goes and says, well, you know, Get Back is, shows the joy of them playing together. And that is true. But the first part of Get Back is actually dark. We, you know, cause, well, Harrison does quit by the end of part one. Yeah. They're arguing with Michael Lindsay Hogg. Like, well, we don't really want to go recording in Libya or, or wherever it was that he was <laughs> suggesting that they do. But the power of suggestion is what I'm sort of trying to make here. The power of suggestion, we all become what we like to refer to in Australia as Monday's experts. Oh, this happened. Oh, the evidence was always there, but people hadn't seen Let It Be for years and years. And they all want to suggest that Oh, the evidence was there all the time. And Peter Jackson is showing, no, there was a different story behind there. But really, having recently rewatched Let It Be For This, because I have a bootleg copy, I found there was really next to nothing. The problem with Let It Be is that there's no narrative. What we get with Get Back is a narrative. We get a story. We see what happens where in Let It Be, it's, I don't know, if you want to call it cinema verite, perhaps. I don't, I'm not sure. It's just here they are rehearsing a bit. Here they are rehearsing another bit here they are having a discussion and also one thing that i think is very important about get back is peter jackson works with the sound we get to hear what they're actually saying in let it be it sounds like the microphone is in the next room and we struggle to hear so that makes it sound darker a film than what it actually is so for your book you pretty much give a very strong description of what actually happened with the aid of peter jackson's film to give that description but where do you stand on Let It Be as its previous narrative? Did you actually ever sort of think, oh, yeah, this is a pretty dark film? Or had you heard the Nagra tapes over the years on bootleg? I mean, where did you stand? Am, am I am I sort of alone in thinking that this really wasn't as dark as people suggest? No, you're, you're going down the right road. I mean, I think like I mentioned before, like when I first saw Let It Be, I was sort of like, oh, okay, whatever. But I was young. I wasn't, you know, the Beatles weren't this thing that they are to me now or have become over the last 10, 20 something, 30 years, whatever, go back to the anthology, whatever. So I, I don't remember being overly impressed with it. I wouldn't say that I didn't like it, but I don't think it blew me away. 
it isn't the most lively, exciting film that's ever been made. Let's face it. It is kind of dark. And when I mean by dark, I mean just visually. It just right. looks the, the the Twickenham sequences in particular. And when you by the time you get to Apple, not the rooftop, it isn't that much brighter. Where with Get Back, Peter Jackson really shows how bright it was. It was kind of bright. Now, how much of that is color correction? I don't really know. One of the reasons I chose to do Let It Be for the 33 and a third series was because I knew it was a good story, not because it was one of their best albums. And other than Sulpy's book, no one had really written a book or written a narrative book because Sulpy's book is kind of not a narrative. It's hard to explain without taking up too much time. I mean, initially he wanted it to just be a transcript, but he submitted it apparently to Apple. And Apple said, if you publish this like this, we will sue you. And that informed a certain negative feeling that he had about the get back sessions, which is another part of the perception. And again, like I said before, when it came out, it came out after the Beatles broke up. So it was the Beatles breakup movie. I think what also happens to, particularly back then, is there's this like critics, there's this pack mentality. So if like Rolling Stone and Cream and Crawdaddy and the Village Voice and the New York Times all say it's dark and it sucks and it's the Beatles Beatles breakup movie, then everybody else goes, oh, okay, well, then that's it. Case closed. (laughs) You know, Rolling Stone said it, so that's it. We're done. Because of the chronology, because that comes out actually after McCartney says, right, I'm suing the rest of them. or I'm Right. So it's all of that. It's all in the context of that. And then that narrative never really changed over the years. I mean, Lennon said he hated it. He said it was, you know, he had a ton of horrible things to say about it. Everybody knows that George Harrison also was not a fan of it. So when I wrote my Let It Be book, though, and I researched it, and I've talked about this many times, I interviewed various people who said, well, no, I was there. And Get Back, Let It Be was not all gloom and doom. And I've quoted this I've said this a hundred times. One person said to me that John Lennon would literally just walk in a room and everybody would fall down laughing because he was so funny because he was just constantly making jokes and being silly. So it wasn't all that. So when I heard and everybody else heard, oh, Get Back is coming out from Peter Jackson. We're going to show a different side of these things. I know a lot of people were like, oh, they're just going to whitewash it. They're going to change the whole narrative of it. It's not true. It's all baloney. A part of me didn't, I didn't feel that strongly, but I was concerned. But I also knew from my research back in 2003 that, yeah, it wasn't all gloom and doom, that it wasn't like that. And look, if you watch the rooftop concert, you know, these guys have still got it. And there was some real magic there. George is a bit aloof. You know, Ringo is Ringo, but I think it's clear that John and Paul were enjoying themselves. Okay. I don't think there's any question about it. So there's somebody that wrote a book about the Beatles and sort of the camps, the different camps, and how people who write about the Beatles or Beatle fanatics have, they're in a camp, they're in the John camp, or they're in the Paul camp, or they're in the Yoko broke up the Beatles camp, or they're in the Sgt. Pepper is absolutely the best thing they ever did. Oh, Sgt. Pepper is just psychedelic hogwarts, you know? And so all these people have these preconceived notions and are put themselves in these different silos. Like, again, I mean, that's why I write the books the way that I do to be a journalist and just let's just put all the facts out there and then everybody can decide where they want to stand. 
because you can argue John was on heroin and during Let It Be. And, you know, he didn't come to the sessions with songs. Yoko was there and she was distracting him. Or you could, if you watched Get Back, you could say, well, no, Yoko was there, but I don't think she ever opened her mouth once. <laughs> she never said a word. She just kind of was just there. She wasn't really involved at all. You know, you could say, Paul, wow, he came with all these great songs and he was driving the project. And it's if it wasn't for him and he, he's got Let It Be on this on this album and he's got two of us and he's got get back and or you could say well paul was bossy or if you want to be a critic and you want to argue one point of view go ahead if that's what you want to do i think it's better to sort of lay it all out at least from my point of view lay it all out and then there are people that are gonna they're just entrenched in their opinions and they're not going to change or they might be like, oh, I see. It was a little more nuanced than that. I, like, I'm not a Yoko broke up the Beatles guy, for example. I don't believe that she broke them up. I think these guys, like most bands, they're headed for a breakup. <laughs> Once they did Sgt. Pepper, it's kind of like, okay, now what do we do? <laughs> Once you do that, I mean, Ringo said it. They were breaking up since Pepper. I mean, they were breaking up during the White Album. Okay, there's no question about it. You know, Ringo quit, George quit. These groups, you've got young, famous men. Men with a lot of money who are incredibly creative. And in the case of John, someone who's had a very troubled life. So how long does this collaboration last? Look at music today. Name me the big rock group that's out there today that came up in the last five or even 10 years. There's no one. It doesn't exist anymore. And I think part of the reason is the people that run the record companies and the record business, they hate rock bands. They don't want to deal with these guys. Because they're always arguing and they're always who wrote the A side, who wrote the B side. And then when it's when it's families, when it's the kinks, when it's the Oasis brothers, you want to get in the middle of that? The birds. You've got Roger McGuinn, David Crosby, Chris Hellman, Gene Clark, Buffalo Springfield, Neil Young, Stephen Stills, Richie Fure, Pink Floyd. You're dealing with incredibly strong personalities. And that's why these groups don't last. So they break up and then they come back. I mean, how many times have the Who broke up? How many times have the Eagles broke up? So the record companies, oh, great. We got a girl singer and she looks great and we'll give her some songs and put her in the studio with a producer and she'll have a few hits. And then when she's done, we'll move on to the next one. I know that sounds terrible to put it like that. I mean, there are talented people who will transcend the trends. These rock bands, I mean, Kings of Leon, probably one of the last great rock bands. A lot of problems there. They had a lot of issues, a lot of internal struggle and people with health problems. And it's hard to keep a band together. You talk about Wilco, one of the great bands. You know, that that is work, keeping that together. And they're a spinoff of Uncle Tupelo. Like you said, they spun off two groups, Uncle Tupelo. Keeping these bands together, keeping everybody happy, and who's got a drug problem, who's got female problems, who's got goes into politics, who can't write songs anymore, who loses their voice, who doesn't, I don't want to work with him, and I, this guy doesn't want to work with that one. Look at all the bands that Eric Clapton was in with, with Ginger Baker. He's in two bands with Ginger Baker. Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker. The music those two guys made together was incredible. They hated each other. Clapton wanted Jack Bruce in blind faith. And Ginger and Steve Winwood said, no way. 
you gotta be kidding we won't last one album well they only lasted one album with rick Gretsch from family but i think that's why that music was so great because you had all of these different people it's bringing something to the table and it's but it's very volatile it's extreme look at the eagles i mean the eagles were a band that were just i don't know how they lasted as long as they did you well, know hell froze I mean, over I mean, you know, Steely Dan became a thing where it was basically Donald and Walter basically, this is our band and that's how it's going to be. Steely Dan is us. So if you want to work with us, you're going to do things our way. I think that that's how it worked in the Eagles too with Don Henley and Glenn Fry. It was like, it was their band and that's how it was going to work. It didn't matter that Randy Meisner was an original member and Bernie Ledden was an original member and Don Felder joined during On the Border or whatever album it was. It's just, that's how it works. And the Who continue on. It's Pete and Roger. They continue, even without the maybe one of the greatest drummers and maybe one of the greatest bass players. So I know I went way off subject there, but <laughs> you know, look at the Rolling Stones too. It's Mick and Keith's band, basically, mm-hmm. but it's they're not the Rolling Stones without Charlie Watts, no. period. End of sentence. And they know it, Mick and Keith both know it. Now they're continuing on and they're, they've got a new record coming out. But yeah, okay, so Bill Wyman doesn't want to be in the band anymore. They changed guitar players three times, three great guitar players. You know, Brian Jones' influence in the beginning, it's Brian's band in the beginning. There's no question about it. And then Mick Taylor is just a hired gun. And now Ron Wood is, he's the longest tenured guitarist in the group after Keith now. So now that I've gone completely off subject. <laughs> We're here. But it, well, hopefully the listeners out there will all enjoy it. But I think, yeah, this all started out with my contention that Let It Be is nowhere near as... Uh, depressing a film as was post suggested when i find myself in times of trouble mother mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom let it be and in my hour of darkness she is standing right in front of me speaking words of wisdom I did want to go down one more direction, but I think I might save that. We might have another discussion on another time. I want to, I'd love to get your opinion on Beatles as jukebox movies, but that's, we'll, we'll save that possibly for another time if you'd love to come. Back. I would love to, do, I would love to. This has been amazing. I, we've Thank been doing, so we're much. at this almost two hours. I wow. feel like I've been sitting here for about 10 minutes. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is, as I said to you before we started recording, this is the sort of show I like to do. And I just sort of wish that my uh, partners, Tim and Kerry, had uh, been a part of this but never mind hopefully well maybe next time i'd love to meet them and give me enough rope you see what happens you know <laughs> you're the sort of guest i like thank but, you so just to finish off okay, what's been the reaction to the book generally see well it's it's selling well i would say that music people beatles people uh, film people they've liked it there's been a few literary reviews that i think i mentioned where they were sort of like you know too much fact that kind of thing I, it's literary people i don't know they're looking for Tolstoy here or something and James <laughs> Joyce I have I have no idea you know it's a book on the Beatles I mean that's what it is it's for it's for music fans for film fans for Beatle fans this is not a book that people who follow the Bloomsbury group are necessarily going to go looking for it's not F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway in Paris in the 20s so you know I'm, I'm making jokes here but, yeah, but to be, I, I to think be there have been a couple of reviewers that didn't quite get what I was doing well, my opinion, for all it's worth, I found it a really fascinating read. Uh, Thank you. Super glad that you put this out because, as I said, I didn't even know that there were other books that were 
dedicated to the Beatles in cinema and if you say that they exist but surely there must have been like quite a while back and out of print so I'm glad you could that still find them back. I highly recommend the two Bob Hieronymus books those are very much in print Definitely. and I and, and the Roy Carr book and you mentioned Mitch Axelrod so you know his book I've got the his Beatles book. cartoons that's yeah. a great book mm. and and there's others and I mentioned them all in my book in the bibliography and in the introduction I hope that when people read my book what it does is it uh, encourages them to go out and check out other books on the Beatles films and other books on the Beatles yeah no shortage of that but I'm just wrapped that you've gone and added to this wonderful culture of you know, putting out Beatles books and it looks like if you can still be releasing something in 2023 53 years after the split then we have a long time to go there's, all, there's hundreds of Beatles podcasts out there you know, we mentioned Mitch Axelrod that for free for all is regular listening for me but there's so much that's why in a way I was sort of reluctant to do an episode like this because I'm thinking there's hundreds of Beatles podcast people who know their stuff ton more than I did but I thought well on the other hand hell we have a film discussion podcast music film discussion podcast and I really really wanted to speak to you so once again thank you so much for being a guest on and, and thank you this has been great I really enjoyed it it's wonderful to meet you thank you wonderful to meet you too Steve I'm, I'm so grateful for this okay with that I'll be back in a moment and I'll be talking about what is going to be happening on next month's episode of See Here <laughs> And there you have it, my wonderful conversation with Steve Matteo. And I hope that you now go out and revisit A Hard Day's Night, Help, even Magical Mystery Tour, Yellow Submarine, Let It Be, and all 9,000 hours of Get Back. Revisit all those Beatles films and maybe go out and watch any of the peripheral Beatles type of stuff. Uh, I wanted to have a conversation with Steve at the end about some of these jukebox musicals like All This in World War II and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band with the Bee Gees and Across the Universe and I Am Sam. But we might save that for another episode because this whole jukebox musical concept, I find it an interesting one. And I've never seen I Am Sam, but the other three are, in my opinion, pretty terrible, but still worthy of a conversation. So that might be for a future episode, or I might just invite Steve back to talk about something that's got nothing to do with the Beatles, nothing to do with anything that he's writing about, just to find a film that he might enjoy being part of a round table with Kerry and Tim and myself. Hope you enjoyed it. All right, let's talk about next month. So I have been in contact with my two lovely co-hosts, Kerry was the first one off the mark to suggest a film for October. So it'll be Tim's turn in November and it'll be my turn in December for a round table. We were going to do another interview or two, but we might leave that to the beginning of 2024. Let's do some round tables. We enjoy them. I hope that you do too. So for episode 110, Kerry has picked a documentary that I haven't seen in probably 15 years since it first came out. The 2008 film, The Wrecking Crew, about that group of session musicians from Los Angeles that played on probably every record that you know and love that came from the West Coast of America from the late 60s into the early 70s. It'll be interesting to see how this documentary holds up. I know that there was quite a lot of love lost between Carol Kay and Hal Blaine, but I can't remember how that's presented in the film. So it'll be interesting to re-watch that. There are probably quite a few films that that set the tone for since then 
again about session musicians being the heroes of a lot of your favorite records. So I'm sure that one or two others will be coming up into the conversation. Anyway, thanks very much to Kerry for picking that one. That'll be episode 110 in October of 2023. All right. Hope that you've had an enjoyable time listening to this episode of the podcast. Go out and listen to some Beatles records. Go out and watch the Beatles films. Read Steve's book. You can find it on any of the online platforms to purchase, either in Kindle form or in physical form, or go down to your local bookshop. Try that, a real live bricks and mortar bookshop. Go buy a copy of the book from there. Should you be so interested, support your local independent bookseller. All right, until next month, look after each other. Be nice to each other. All the best. Cheers. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom is dead. My mom is right there. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.